Good evening, my friends. Thank you so much for being with me. I got something going on here, and so I'm going to have to take regular drinks, and I'll probably sound like I'm singing the bass note the entire time we have this class, but I'm okay. I've had the flu bug hit our house pretty hard this week. Reformation and restoration. The difference between reforming and restoring. We've spent a considerable amount of this semester dealing with the idea of reforming. The selfish nature of only taking our priorities back to a level that we're comfortable with. Uh, Luther, for instance, he nails his 95 theses or concerns to the church building door. And in that he states, I've got 95 things that would please me if the church would tweak these and get them back to a level that pleased me. Luther never had as his original or ongoing goal to go to a place where Scripture, the authority of God, was completely restored, as it was in the New Testament. And so the Reformation movement itself <coughs> excuse me, is only a, uh, a half-step. Some would say it's in the right direction. I'm not sure, because it's clearly a half-step that is taken in a direction of selfishness. And although I think that there was a level of sincerity in the heart of Luther and Calvin and some of these fellows, clearly their motives were off in that they simply wanted to go back to what they felt like was best. Never really wanted to restore what God said is best. Well, we're going to deal <clears throat> in the next uh, several lessons with Heaven's, hermene Heaven's hermeneutics. As you recall, last time we laid them out in detail, <coughs> and I... <clears throat> Excuse me, I gave you those three parts to Heaven's Hermeneutics. And by the way, let me just say, it's very possible that you can find other hermeneutical principles in Scripture. And I'd be happy for you to write in and tell me. But I'm confident that these three are the basics with regards to what God does and how He preserves His own legitimacy in the words that He has given to us and has been written down for us. The first thing is that God expresses. The, the second thing is that God not only expresses, but then we're going to find that, uh, well, you know what, I think I just may wait on that. Let's, let's not pedal too far ahead, because I think this, that second part is, is where we always want to run to, especially in the restoration movement. And yet I think that by doing so, we, we really hamstring ourselves with regards to what the first principle is. God expresses you got to start there. No matter what goes on, number two, that he explains, uh, or number three, that he is going to expose, if you want to use that word, or he's going to exclude is the word I'm going to use, those who are false teachers. <coughs> those following two points are, are significant, and we'll build to those, but they don't mean anything if you don't establish the first, and that is that God himself expresses what God himself wants of you and I. As you know, when we do this, I always try to start off with a, a series of five questions. And so there they are. <coughs> Screenshot that, and then you'll be able to follow along with me. You got them? All right, here we go. As I've been telling you, we are trying to begin, uh, a, well, we, we started some 
lessons ago, beginning a series of passages that obviously indicate that we are called to restore New Testament Christianity, not reform, restore. So these lines right here, these white lines right here, that's what we're supposed to be doing. These black lines that are going off away from the purity of the Lord's church, we're not supposed to be involved in that. We are to restore. And throughout our series of collection, collecting these passages, I've, I've shared with you the Matthew 28 passage. And I told you that from now on, I'm only going to have the Matthew 28 and the Jeremiah 6, because I think that they do a real good job summarizing. Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah says, you need to look for, you need to ask for the ancient paths. And then you go to Matthew 28, and Jesus is going to say, as he builds upon that eternal principle, a principle that has been around even before the church began, that we need to restore, go back, constantly restore the authority of God in our value system. Jesus is going to say, verse 20 of Matthew 28, he's going to say, I need you to go teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. Not the Pope, not the priest, not the pastor, not the whatever. Okay? He will express what he desires, and we need to stay with what he says. This is actually the key to appreciating what goes on in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. But Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, do all these marvelous things. And then, at the judgment scene, the final statement is, depart from me, I never knew you, you, you who work evil, you lawless people. And it's a scary passage, because it sounds like that there can be people on the day of judgment, who are going to be disappointed that I thought I was in, and all of a sudden I'm not. It's it's verse 21 you really got to focus on in Matthew 7, because verse 21 says that it's the will of the Father that must be done, the will of the Father. You're only going to find the will of the Father if you seek for that which he expresses, not the Pope, not the priest, not the pastor, not the preacher, okay? So, principle number one, God will express. God will speak for himself. God always speaks for himself. He might employ others to pass along the message. He might employ others to archive the message, as he does in that marvelous book of Revelation, where he tells John, write these things down. He might employ others to pass it on. He might employ others to archive it. But God always gives the message himself. He is the only one permitted to initiate his words. In other words, not the Pope, not the priest, not the pastor, not the preacher. Nobody has the authority to put words in God's mouth. Hebrews 6 and verse 13, I think, illustrates this. When God made a promise to Abraham, that ancient covenant from which we get his covenant that he made with, with what will become the nation of Israel, when God made that ancient promise, promise to Abraham, it says that since he had no greater, no one greater by whom he could to swear this, to swear this oath, he swore by himself. In other words, God is the beginning and the end of the authority. It's his game, if you want to be so blunt or crude. It's, it, it's, it's his project. And so God will express himself. He'll say what he wants to have said, and he doesn't need you to speak for him. No one else has the credibility to initiate God's word. No one. But the Catholic Church certainly would say they have the right to initiate uh, that idea. And I think you would even say that uh, the, uh, the Calvinistic folks, uh, there is no Calvinistic church, but uh, it certainly dominates the Baptist church and it dominates the Presbyterian church and many others. Uh, but even in Calvinism, you've got this 
it's more subtle, but you've got this attempt to make sure that God only speaks what we want him to speak. I want to deal first with the Catholics, then we'll deal with the Calvinists with regards to this idea of God expresses for himself. Notice there at the far left the authority of the Catholic Church. If you've been with me throughout the series, you've seen this before, but there are three there are three legs to the stool of authority that the Catholic Church claims to have. The first is the magisterium. That's the hierarchy, the guys at the top. The second is scripture. And the third is church tradition. And so they would quote a lot of, of, from the writings of, of people that were church fathers, for instance, that kind of thing. Notice that three or two of the three legs of, to the stool, two of the three legs are actually man-made stuff. They actually come from, the, from man's concoctions. Only the scripture would be claimed as being directly from God. And by the way, they're allowed themselves to add to that if you study Catholic doctrine. Let's deal with the Catholics first, and then we'll, we'll move on to the, the Calvinists here. The Catholic Church likes to use Matthew 6, verses 16 through 19 to prove that they're allowed to add whatever they want. Specifically, whoever gets the supposed uh, inheritance of the papal authority. Simon Peter replied, you're Jesus, or you're, you're the Christ, excuse me, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, as a result of that, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, we spent a lot of time, we did the Catholic series, on discussing the word rock there. It's not talking about Peter. It's a different Greek word. Uh, but anyhow, you have to go back and see those lessons if you wanted to deal with that. The rock that he's speaking of here, I'm confident, is the statement that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anyhow, he goes on to say then, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so Catholicism runs off down this path to suggest that Peter is the first pope and that he was given the keys to the kingdom. Now they, they quickly want to add in the following phrases that whatever you bind on earth, you bound in heaven, loose on earth, be loosed in heaven. But let's just deal with one phrase at a time. How was Peter given the keys to the kingdom? Well, what do keys do? Keys open doors, right? And Peter was the keynote speaker. Notice how I got key in there? Keynote speaker in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, was he not? By the way, side note, all the others also spoke that day. It wasn't just Peter. But if you take and you just look at Peter, essentially what you have is Peter being then the one who operates the keys. He unlocks the doors. He's the one who initiates an age, if you will, where the Jews are ushered into the acceptable relationship with God if they accept the Messiah. The Samaritans the same way. The Gentiles, as you go on down the list there, you see. So Peter certainly did have the keys. I would argue that the rest of the apostles did as well. But Peter certainly did have the keys to the kingdom and that he was the one who was going to unlock the door with that initial Acts 2 sermon that was going to open the floodgates for those who wanted to come to the Lord. But then there's this phrase that they really want to rush you off to. Give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there you go. Peter, whatever you decide is to be bound on man, that's going to be bound. Whatever you decide is to be loosed, they're free, that's going to be loosed. Because you're the first pope, and you get to speak on behalf of God. 
That's not at all what this passage is saying. And one of the reasons I know that is because if you be a good Bible student and use the harmony of Scripture rather than cherry pick, as the Calvinists like to do and the Catholic Church likes to do, you'll notice that in Matthew chapter 18, that Jesus himself is going to also address all the apostles by saying, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth, etc. So you, you, you have the same promise given to Peter in Matthew 16, given to the rest of the guys in Matthew 18. It's not unique to Peter at all. Peter wasn't the first pope. He certainly did have the keys to the kingdom and that he helped open the door. So did the rest of the apostles, by the way. They spoke too on in Acts chapter 2. And the same thing that is said to Peter, this supposed special right of theirs to be able to bind or loose, same thing goes to all the apostles, not just Peter. So what exactly did he mean by you can bind or loose and those same things we bound or loose in heaven? Well, that's going to be, notice we stayed in the same book. We're using the same contextual writings, the same fella, and yet we're using the harmony of Scripture to point out that in Matthew 28, Jesus will say before ascending to the Father, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so Peter had the right to command what Jesus had the, or Jesus commanded. Peter had the right to withhold any commands or to take away, if you would, such as some of the Old Testament commands, as long as Jesus did that first, because Jesus is the authority. All authority has been given unto him in heaven and earth, if you were to back up in Matthew 28 to verse 18. It's not given to Peter. It's not given to Paul. It's not given to John. These men are only the, the mouthpiece of Jesus. They've been given the opportunity to write it down. They've been given the opportunity to pass it along. They've been given the opportunity to archive it. But they have not been given the opportunity to invent it as they desire. And so when you look again at this square or whatever, whatever rectangle that shows the, you know, the authority of the Catholic Church, I, re I would remind you that two of the three legs are non-existent as far as God is concerned. When you talk about the authority of the church, it's all under Jesus. It, Jesus is the one who gets to say, and then we pass along or archive, but we do not in any way add to. And by the way, let me say also before leaving them and going to the Calvinists, that the apostles were a unique group of men. These are individuals that had been with Jesus. Remember, to be an apostle, according to the words of Peter himself, you had to be with Jesus from the baptism of John until the ascension. And so the Pope today cannot be an apostle. He just simply can't, not according to the, the, the uh, regulations of Peter, who supposedly is the first Pope. So they're, they're good for Peter being the first Pope as long as they can ignore some of the things that he said. Peter says, no, to be an apostle, you have to have been with Jesus this entire time. Today's Pope he most certainly it was not. Therefore, that tells us that he, the present Pope, doesn't have apostolic authority. And it also tells us that the apostles were unique in that these were men that God himself had selected to be the writer down, the archivers, and the pass it along of the message of Jesus. They don't pass along new they pass along what Jesus has given to them. I'll prove that towards the conclusion of this lesson. But now let's turn our attention to the Calvinists. This little 
meme right here is, is so powerful. The scripture comes in looking so pretty and blue, and yet it has to be filtered through the tulip before the Calvinists will accept it. And when it gets to the bottom there, it looks so muddy and ugly. Calvinists would have us to believe that we are all totally depraved. You can't seek God. You can't find him. There's nothing that you can do, even though Acts 17 says that's exactly why we were created. But you're, you're totally depraved. But at the same time that they say we're totally depraved, they will defend that position by quoting Reformation leaders who are totally depraved. One of the most alarming parts to Calvinism is the amount of emphasis they placed on, place on the doctrines of men. Now, without question, Catholicism, hands down, has been the most perverted throughout the years with regards to this. But what Calvinism did is it, it kind of came through the back door. What Calvinism did is it said, no, we're, we're going to use Scripture, but we're only going to use Scripture as long as it fits into our five-letter tulip. So you can use any passage that you want, but you've got to first filter it through the tulip. And so Calvin presents us these five principles, supposedly, that uh, are to give us the filtering system for God's Word. You can't understand it unless you filter it through the tulip. But you see what just happened there. Essentially, even though it's, it's sneaky, it's coming through the back door, essentially what they said is, we will control what God actually says. And so God expresses, yes, but when he expresses, in order for you to understand it, you've got to run it through the tulip. Or else you just, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I have cornered a Calvinist with a, a quote of scripture. And they, they're under conviction. They recognize that they're cornered. They are going to have to give up their Calvinism. But instead, they'll say, well, you're lost, Sonny. You're lost, and therefore you can't understand. It's their one get-out-of-jail card. At least they think it is. But it's a perverted move. Because what they're doing essentially is saying, unless we define what God says, God didn't say it. Now, here's the passage that I had alluded to just a moment ago. And it's so very, very powerful. Notice who writes it. Their supposed pope, if you're Catholic, Peter is going to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, no prophecy, no inspired message from God because remember, prophecy is not just about predicting the future. Prophecy simply means to speak forth. And so no inspired message of God, none of them, no inspired message of God comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. A man, not the Pope, not the priest, not the pastor, not the preacher, not the Peter, no man is allowed to have his own private interpretation, which means then I've got to rely on God's interpretation, which is where we're going with this. We're going to see that next time with regards to how can I know? Because God's going to explain it. That's the next principle number two. God explains. Well, so stay with me. Next lesson, we'll deal with that. But you'll notice that verse 20 strictly condemns Calvinism and their perverted filtering system. It strictly condemns the Pope and Catholicism with this whole idea that they can make up what they want because they've got papal authority. No, no message from God is subject to somebody's personal interpretation. But he goes on. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. <clears throat> 
the inspired word does not come because man thinks it needs to be there. I have known people who felt like that they just had to say it because God just wasn't getting the job done. And so they had to say, I'm convinced that's why Catholicism, all of the apostasy throughout church history, really originated with this idea that God's just not getting her done. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them out. But notice that no prophecy, no inspired word of God comes by the will of man. It doesn't originate there. But he does tell us how it comes. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? God. So God will carry them along so they can write it down, archive it, present it, but it's always been God's message. And so number one in the principles of heaven's hermeneutics, you've got to accept that God does the expressions. He speaks for himself. He doesn't need you. Not, I'm not going to do it again. You're tired of it. But we've got to drill that into our head because it's the dominant view of all denominationalism. It even seems to be quite dominant within the restoration movement because so many people are all about, well, I went to a Christian college. Or they come up with some difficulty, had a congregation I'm aware of just a few years ago. They weren't sure about whether to install a certain man as an elder because he had been divorced. They didn't know what to do. Imagine that. They didn't know what to do. So they contacted a local Christian college to find out what's the answer. Think about that. Is, is that any more wrong than what Catholicism does or Calvinism does? The local Christian college doesn't have any, any authority to trump what God has to say. God always speaks for himself. He might employ others to pass along the message. He might employ others to archive the message, but God never permits others to initiate his words. One of the most damnable things that we can do is to assume we have the right to put words in God's mouth. We do not. Okay, that's hermeneutic number one from God, that he'll do the expressing. There are the five questions that I shared with you this evening. I think we covered them pretty good. Thank you for being with me. Sorry about my raspy throat. Hope you're able to understand it all. I love you. This is Sonny Chow saying, be there. Matthew 16, 26.